we have all heard, the older we get, the more forgetful we become. But I think I'm starting to really question that perspective. Because I've experienced firsthand that young people seem to be very forgetful as well. When I say young people, I'm talking about real young people. I mean, I'm talking about three young people. And of course, these young people are my children. My three, my four, and my six-year-old. It's odd because bedtime is always at 8.30 at my house. And yet, I can tell them, it's 8.30, guys. And they just look at me, puzzled, confused, clueless, as if they don't understand or realize what that means. They just seem to think naturally dad has this habit of all of a sudden bellowing out, it's 8.30. Then I usually go on to inform them that 8.30 means bedtime, which seems to then instantly shock my little ones as if going to bed at 8.30 is totally a new concept for them, as if they have never heard this before. But then the words bedtime, start to sink into their little minds. And fear seems to take over quickly. And creative excuses begin to flow out of their little hearts. Daddy, it's so early, the sun's not even down yet. Or Daddy, we took too long of naps today, so can we stay up longer? Or Daddy, we worked so hard today, and we haven't had any time to play with our toys. Or, Daddy, it's not good to go to bed on an empty stomach, I mean, on a full stomach. We had so much dessert this evening. So I pray that God will begin to help my little ones with their amnesia, their forgetfulness, so I won't have to continue to remind them with the rod. But... I must say it is inter interesting because when I bring out the rod, for some odd reason, they instantly start to remember everything again. Well, I'm sure we aren't like my children with this selective memory loss. But this morning, I want to refresh our memories, remind us specifically about the disciples to where the disciples have been. I want us to think back to what the disciples have just went through so we can understand their present situation in our verses in John this morning. So if you remember, probably about four weeks ago, the disciples just watched Christ get arrested. They just watched Christ, their Savior, tortured and finally crucified. And the question is, what did the disciples do during their Lord's capture? What did the disciples do during their Lord's crucifixion? I mean, did they stand by Christ's side? 
Did the disciples support Christ? Did they follow him to his death? Or maybe they didn't just follow Christ, but maybe they fought on Christ's behalf as loyal and dedicated servants of the Most High. Well, we know that's not the case because we know that Peter denied Christ three times. He blatantly lied about even knowing who Christ was. We also know that Judas betrayed Christ as well. And then out of guilt and shame, he tragically hung himself. But what about the other disciples? What did the other disciples do when Christ was arrested and crucified? Matthew 26, 56 tells us by saying, all the disciples left him and fled. So all the disciples left Christ. All the disciples turned their backs on Christ entirely. And it wasn't because they were a bunch of hypocrites or a bunch of sellouts who really didn't love Christ. These guys gave up everything to follow him. They were zealous for Christ. But when Christ was arrested and crucified, the disciples' world turned upside down. They didn't think it was possible for Christ, for the Messiah, for the Savior of the Jewish people to be killed. I mean, the disciples thought the Messiah would conquer the world. The Jewish Messiah was going to reign on all the earth, and they were going to be the ones to conquer the Romans. So it was never an option for the Messiah to be killed by mere man. So when it happened, they were in a panic. They were lost. They were confused. They began to wonder if Jesus was the true Messiah, if Christ was who he said he was. The disciples' faith, their confidence in Christ had become consumed with fear and dread as the Lord, their Lord and Savior was captured and crucified. They wondered if they would be next if the Jews would be knocking down their door and dragging them out and the Romans crucifying them as well. And this takes us to our verses this morning where we'll be in John 20, 19 through 23. John 20, 19 through 23. But the only problem is we won't be able to cover, cover verse 23 adequately, so there will be a handout available after service explaining verse 23 if you're interested. I've entitled this message with a question. Is our faith greater, is our fear greater than our faith? Let me say that again. Is our fear greater than our faith? So as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. Father, we lift you up. Father, I ask that you help us to be a people who live for your glory and your glory alone. Help us not to be people pleasers, controlled by fear. Help us to be bold and stand for Christ, to be a light for Christ in this dark world. But as we are bold, Father, I ask that you give us love 
and gentleness to those that we talk to. We thank you for this morning. In Christ's name, amen. John 20, 19 starts by saying this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So the disciples are all together huddled in a house, and it says that the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. They were full of fear, fear of torture, fear of death, fear of being crucified. Fear in general had a tight grip on their hearts. I wonder if you've ever been in a place like the disciples where fear has overtaken you. Where fear has its hold on you. Where you are so fearful you are paralyzed even to move or to think straight. May not be fear of being persecuted or even being killed like the disciples, but it may be fear or some other fear, like fear of the rejection, or fear of people-pleasing, or fear of intimacy with your spouse, or maybe fear of heights, or maybe fear of flying, or maybe fear of public speaking, or fear of being in crowds. And the list goes on and on on how fear affects all of us. But the point is, fear is a battle for many of us. Fear reaches down and touches all of us one way or another. So let me say, from the start, let me say confidently this morning that Christ offers us peace instead of fear. Christ offers us hope instead of hopelessness, amen? So let's look back to our text and see how the disciples' fear was transformed into peace. John 20, 19 says this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So the disciples, again, are scared and fearful as Christ crashes this depressing get-together, right? What we see is that he walks through a locked door, which is something we'll try to cover probably next week in our next week's sermon. But can you imagine such a scene as this? The disciples had to be astonished. They must have been shocked. They just saw Christ brutally killed, right? And now he was standing right in front of them, alive resurrected, glorified. And what's interesting is that Christ doesn't reprimand them. He doesn't confront them for their lack of faith, or he doesn't chastise them for abandoning him as he faced the cross alone. He doesn't even tell them how hurt he was for their lack of loyalty towards him. Christ does something altogether different. Christ looks beyond himself. He looks beyond what has happened to him and does what is best for his friends. He ministers to them. Christ gives the disciples what they needed instead of giving them what they deserved. 
And Christ says, peace be with you. Again, as the disciples are full of fear, and it tells us that the door was locked for fear of the Jews. So the last thing the disciples had was peace, right? I mean, think about it. When we are full of fear, when we are consumed by fear, how much peace do we have? And the answer is none. We don't have peace. Fear instead of faith is what led the disciples to abandon Christ. Fear instead of faith motivated them to turn away from Christ. Fear instead of faith caused the disciples to stop trusting, to stop believing that Christ was who he said he was, that Christ was in control of all things. And Christ says in the midst of their fear-filled hearts, peace be with you. But you might be thinking, how can Christ say such a thing to them? I mean, it almost seems a little heartless. It almost sounds insulting to say, peace be with you when they're under such duress, under such stress, under such trouble, under such danger as their life is on the line. But the peace Christ offers wasn't based on what was going around, around the disciples. Christ wasn't saying, I'm going to make your circumstances better. That's not what he said. But the peace Christ offered was altogether different. It was an inward peace, not outward circumstantial peace. The peace Christ offered calms the soul. It brings quietness to the heart. The peace that Christ offered was supernatural. The peace that Christ offered couldn't be taken away by man or anyone or anything. But this leads to point number one. Christ is the source of real peace. Let me say that again. Christ is the source of real peace. Isaiah 9, 6, which was read this morning, tells us that Christ is the Prince of Peace. Christ didn't just give them peace, but he himself was their peace. He is the embodiment of peace, not just for the disciples, but to all, to all church who turn to him in repentance and belief and trust in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. The question is how? How is Christ our peace? How did Christ give us all access into such peace? Ephesians 2, 14 through 16 says this, For he himself, that's Christ, is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Through the cross, church, Christ destroyed the barriers between God and man. 
Christ's crucifixion and resurrection brought peace between God and man. Christ became the perfect sacrifice. It was what we call the glorious exchange where Christ took on our sins and faced the wrath of God while Christ imputed or gave us his righteousness so that we'd be accepted fully, holy by God as blameless, as perfect because of Christ. Going back to our main text, Jesus says, peace be with you because literally Christ just gave them their peace on the cross and rising from the grave, amen? So no longer would the disciples, nor those of us in Christ, have to fear judgment. No longer would we have to fear death. No longer do we have to be slaves of fear. Write a song we sing. But now we are all a child of God. How blessed we are to call ourselves child, a child of the Most High, children of the King, children of God. The question is, do we know this peace that Christ gave the disciples this morning? And I wonder this morning if we have turned to the ultimate source of peace. Have we turned to Christ as Lord and Savior? And I would guess that many of us would say yes. Many of us would say the Holy Spirit has drawn us and he is now our Lord and Savior. Yet many of us still, I would say, struggle with fear. Many of us, even in this room right now, may be paralyzed by fear. But the reality of it is, the problem isn't often fear itself, but what we do with the fear that we have. How do we handle those times when we are fearful? Well, let me give us some of the sinful or wrong ways of handling fear that often leads us into more fear. Wrong way, number one. I will avoid all situations that lead to fear. Wrong way number one says, I will avoid all situations that lead to fear. Some of us avoid anything that leads to facing or dealing with the fear we struggle with. If we are fearful of flying, then we would rather drive 25 hours than hop on a plane for two hours to get to our destination. Or if we are fearful of elevators, we will walk up or climb up 20 flights of stairs instead of take the elevator. And I know... Many of you will say this, it's good exercise to walk up and climb up all those stairs, right? But in reality, it shows the links we will go to avoid dealing with our fear. Another prime example of avoidance because of fear would be conflict. I mean, some of us are horrified of conflict to the point that we would rather die or be tortured than have to face somebody in conflict. I wonder if this is you this morning. If you've continued to run as far as you can away from your fear, maybe it's conflict, or maybe it's fearing what others think about you. I would encourage you to begin 
to test the waters and spend time in prayer and ask God to allow you to begin to walk in faith instead of fear. We need to remember what Paul told young Timothy who struggled with fear, who was prone to fear. This is what Paul said to Timothy. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and in love and self-control. 2 Timothy 1, 7. But the wrong way, number two, that we often handle fear is I will do anything to get over the fear. I will do anything to get over my fear. And at first glance, you would think this would be a good motivator. A focused individual who is ready to do whatever it takes to get over their fear seems like a recipe for success, right? But in reality, it shows utter desperation. This person is controlled by their fear instead of being led by God. They will literally do anything, try anything to get over their fear, including if need be, disobey God to get out of the out-of-control fear they have. And this tells us something. It reveals that fear is their God instead of God being their God. Fear has become an idol that they worship and focus on above all else. So as believers, we have to start by pleasing God even above getting rid of our fear issues. The goal is not how can I get rid of my overgrown fear, but how can I worship Christ regardless if I have fear or not? Wrong way number three. Fear is just a part of who I am. Wrong way number three says this. Fear is just a part of who I am. On the surface, this statement is true, though, as we are all bent towards different struggles with sin, as our natural flesh has all sorts of wrong natural tendencies, whether it's anger or lust or worry or fear or unforgiveness or people-pleasing. The problem isn't so much in this phrase, but what they mean when they say fear is just part of who I am. Many say this because they've decided that they will just have to live with their fear for the rest of their lives. They believe it's impossible to get beyond their fear. So they've already given up. They have waved the white flag. And now instead of repenting of their sinful struggle, they now learn to just cope or manage their fear. Romans 6.12 tells us this about doing that. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Paul tells us clearly not to manage our sin, but to put it to death. John Owen, the great Puritan, once said this, be killing sin or sin be killing you. We can't have a nonchalant or laissez-faire attitude about our sinful struggles. We should look at fear or any other sin as poison that needs to be eradicated. So we walk in repentance and submit our fear to Christ and begin to handle our fear in ways that would please our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
The question is, do we realize that fear itself isn't the real problem, but often how we handle our fears? I wonder if any of these three wrong ways of handling fear applies to us this morning. But now that we have talked about some of the wrong ways of dealing with fear, let's look at the right way of dealing with fear. Let's go back to our text. And we're in now John 20, 20. And it says this. When he, that is Jesus, said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus proves to the disciples that it is really him by showing them his scars. Jesus shows the disciples that he rose from the grave, that it's really him. He is truly Lord and Savior. And what happens? It says the disciples were glad. The question is why? Why were the disciples glad? The answer is they realized Christ was truly who he said he was, that he truly was Messiah. Christ revived. Christ renewed their faith in him. The disciples fear was met with faith. Their fear that so gripped their heart now had been conquered by faith in Christ Jesus. The question is, what is behind their faith? What drove their faith in Christ Jesus? Or what is at the center of the faith the disciples had? And the answer is love. The disciples' love for Christ was renewed. See, we have to remember, they had deep relationship, fellowship with him before this. They walked with him for three years. And this intimate relationship the disciples had with Christ is a picture of what kind of relationship we should be having with Christ today. If we have strong faith in Christ, then we can guarantee that we have deep love for Christ as well. If we have love and faith in Christ, then we know we have close relationship with him as well. This love relationship is what fuels our faith. As God loves us, we love him. And the more we love him, the stronger our faith becomes. And this leads to point number two. Love for Christ is the answer to fear. Love for Christ is the answer to fear. Let's put love in perspective for a second. What if I was walking on a trail and stumbled across a big bear that hadn't eaten in a really long time and he looked at me and saw a ribeye steak? Well, for starters... Let me confess, I would be scared. And I think saying I would be scared would be an understatement because I would be horrified. I would be so horrified that I would probably just die of a heart attack right on the spot. I mean, the fear would be so great, I would really just die of fright before the bear ever got close to me. I'm a wimp, I admit it. I'm a chicken. 
But let's change this scenario up just a little bit here. And say that instead of the bear wanting to eat me, the bear was going after my boys. I would still be full of fear. Possibly even more fear, right? Recognizing my boys are in danger. But this time, I would act differently. I probably wouldn't have a heart attack. I wouldn't be so focused on my own fear because my boys were in harm's way. I would dare say, without hesitation, I, as well as you, would be willing to fight a bear a lion, or whatever to protect our children. We would be willing to sacrifice everything we have, including our own lives, to protect our loved ones, our children. The question is why? What would cause us not to give in to our fear to protect our children? What would cause us to walk through our fear and sacrifice everything, our, our, everything we have, including our lives, to protect our children? And the, question, and the answer is love, right? It's love, which leads to point number three. Love drives us to walk through our fear. Love drives us to walk through our fear. 1 John 4, 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Scripture says that fear is no match for love. Love overcomes fear every time. J. Adams says this, Love throws fear out on its ears every time. Love looks outside of self, while fear looks inward to self. Love looks to give while fear looks to take. Love is selfless while fear is selfish. So the question is, are we willing to do the loving thing this morning? Are we willing to walk through our fear because of our love for God and others? You may be here this morning in fear has its hold on you. And at this point, you've been willing to protect yourself. You've been playing it safe for a long time and you haven't been vulnerable or open with others. And you know it's wrong. You know it damages your relationships. But fear has such a hold on you, such a grip. Well, let me encourage us that today is a new day. This morning, we can confess and ask God and others that we ask for forgiveness for this by starting to walk in love instead of fear. Jesus says to us in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. That means walk through the fear and love each other with God's pure, God's undefiled, God's sacrificial love. I wonder what our marriages would look like if we obeyed Christ in this commandment here and took Christ seriously. Husbands, does fear hold you back from leading your family spiritually? What would it look like to love your wife instead of giving the fear. 
What about the wives? I know I can't leave you guys out. That's not nice, right? Wives, what does it look like for you to love your husband instead of let fear run your heart? Church, we have to remember, it's natural to have fear, to be controlled, to be in bondage, to fear. But love, on the other hand, is altogether different. It's something supernatural. It's Holy Spirit-led. It's something we can grow in when we are depending on Christ for our strength. But we have other passages to cover, so I have to go forward here. So let's go back to our main passage where we have seen the disciples turn from fear to faith. They have turned from protection of self to loving Christ with renewed faith. And now we are in John 20, 21, which says this. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Which leads to point number four. Christ gives us peace and then he gives us purpose. Christ gives us peace, and then he gives us purpose. But I know purpose doesn't really seem like that big of a deal to us, right? I mean, who cares about purpose? Who wants to know why they are on earth? Who wants to know why they exist? Who wants to know their calling in life? The whole purpose business is just way overrated, right? Okay, that's totally not true. Forgive me for telling fibs while I'm preaching. But everyone wants to know their purpose, right? Everyone wants to know what they are created for. Whether it's teens or the businessman or the businesswoman or the mom or dad or the husband or wife or the singles or the retired folks, all universally want to know what their purpose is. Why on earth am I here? And here Christ plainly tells us. He tells us, as we now have been freed of fear and have peace with God through Jesus Christ, as we have been reconciled back to God, we have been called not only friends of God, but children of God. And Jesus says again in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Christ says, your purpose is to go and live for me. I want you to enthusiastically tell the world about me. Your purpose in life isn't to live for your own glory. Your purpose isn't to chase wealth or seek power or to live for entertainment. Your purpose is something greater, something much greater than indulging in self. It's to live for God's glory. And you may be sitting here this morning and saying, well, it sounds really great to walk in this purpose God has for me, but I'm just not adequate. I'm just too fearful to share my faith with others. And I would say that you are in good company because the disciples were inadequate as well. They weren't ready or prepared or up to the challenge or the task to live for Christ either. I mean, we just saw, right, a second ago, all, they were all huddled in a room, fearful, scared, and they were going, that they were going to be found out by the Jews. And yet Christ used to the, the disciples to spread his name throughout the whole known world. The question is how? 
How did these inadequate, fearful disciples end up being used so powerfully? Well, it's a good thing we're going verse by verse because our next verse tells us. Let's look back at John 20, verses 21 and 22. Jesus said to them, that's the disciples again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So Christ gave the disciples the Holy Spirit. Christ knew the disciples couldn't handle their mission, their purpose, without having help, without having guidance without having the Holy Spirit. I mean, the disciples within themselves were no match for Satan and his demons. The disciples were no match for the world. The disciples surely were no match for their own sinful nature. But with the Holy Spirit, with God living in them, they now could face anything the enemy throws at them, which leads to point number five. Christ gives us the ability to fulfill our purpose through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. Christ gives us the ability to fulfill our purpose through the power of the Holy Spirit. Which means we will often feel inadequate. We will often feel overcome with thinking that situation is the same as beyond, beyond us, that the situation is way beyond what we can handle or control. We'll feel like what we are facing is over our heads. And I would say that usually the situations we are facing are over our heads, but as we have said many times, what's over our heads is what? Under Christ's feet. And Christ now lives in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So our purpose isn't accomplished because of us, but because of Christ living inside of us. As Jesus says in John 20, 22 again, and when he, that is Jesus, had said this, he breathed on the disciples and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The disciples' ability rested in the power of the Holy Spirit. And similarly, it hasn't changed with us either. The Holy Spirit continues to give us the ability to follow God's will. When we take a step forward in faith, we can know that it is Christ working in us, giving us the ability to overcome the obstacles, the trials and the struggles that only God can handle, not us. Well, in conclusion... We have talked about a lot of stuff this morning. We have discussed that Christ is our peace. He is the answer to our fear. His love conquers all our fears. But Christ didn't just save us from fear, but he gave us a reason for life. He gave us purpose. But also, he gave us the ability to follow through on our purpose through the work of the Holy Spirit how overwhelmed we should be as children of God, recognizing God's provision for us. He gives us more than what we deserve. He continually blesses us every day. He has freed us. He has loved us. He has taken care of us. He has protected us. He has blessed us. And one day, church, we will be able to worship him face to face forever in eternity for his glory.
for his praise. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you this morning, recognizing you are the only God worth worshiping, Father. You are the only God. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you the depths of teaching that we can dive down into your word and just go deeper as your word continues to amaze us, astound us on how much there is for us to learn. But we shouldn't be surprised recognizing it's written by you. So thank you for your inerrant word. Help us to be faithful to you this morning. In Christ's name, amen.